Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates, Send in the Clowns, The Phoenix Tube Company, CelebrityTrips.com, The Law Firm of Decalator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and Relish Restaurant of Kings Park. Here are your hosts. Mark and AJ. Joining us now is a graduate of Emerson College where he lettered in baseball for four seasons, was a teammate of one of our favorite guests and authors, Eric Sherman, but his broadcast career began before that, actually. At age 19, he had a fill-in role as play-by-play announcer for the Nashua Pirates. In 1992, he moved to Las Vegas where he served as a play-by-play man for the San Diego Padres and Los Angeles Dodgers AAA affiliates. He's called International Hockey League Games, AJ, for the Las Vegas Thunder, your favorite sport. For five seasons, he served in a multiple uh, multiple capacities for FSN, providing play-by-play coverage and doing studio shows and filling in on Colorado Rockies telecast. He's worked as a radio sports talk host at KLZAM 560, hosted a weekend sports show for the Sporting News Radio, was host of This Week in Mountain West for the Mountain West Radio Network. Basically, you could say he's done it all. He was then hired to play be play-by-play announced for the Pirates in 2009, served in that role until the end of the 2015 season, where he took his current position with the Red Sox. It is a thrill to welcome the pride of New Hampshire, Tim Neverett, to WLIE 540 AM Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Tim. Mark, how are you? Doing great. That's uh, quite an intro, a little too long, though. <laughs> <laughs> Mark always does that with people. He goes on and on. Now we're out of time. No, that, that, that is a very impressive resume, and for people that are not in this area, you know, it just gets a flavor of, of the many things you've done. Before we get to the Red Sox, let's talk a little bit about that career. 1985, at the age of 19, you're the play-by-play voice of your hometown National Pirates, the Eastern League AA affiliate of the Pirates. How did that job come about at age 19? Uh, it came about in a funny way because I was um, an intern for the radio station, and I was also playing summer baseball because I was still playing college baseball at the time. And, uh, you know, summer college baseball is not like it is now. We used to have to play semi-pro baseball, essentially. Um, and uh, so there was a team that played in the same state, actually, um, in Nashua. And so I was playing for that team, and then the internship was getting in the way, and I said to myself, you know, do I have a better chance of going to the major leagues as, uh, as a broadcaster or as a player? And I said, I'm still going to play when I get back to school in the fall. So I, <laughs> I said, uh, you know, I, I said, I, I want to learn how to be a broadcaster. So I was interning with the guys that uh, were doing the games, and in those days, uh, the announcers didn't work for the team. They worked for the radio station. And uh, they, you know, they had regular jobs. So they learned that by giving me some middle innings of some games, they started talking to each other and saying, well, gee, you know, I could get this night off and you could get that night off. And, you know, before you know it, I'm doing about 50 games and uh, doubleheader by myself on July 4th because they wanted to be off <laughs> and enjoy the holidays. So it was a good break for me. And uh, it really made me realize how much I didn't know about baseball. <laughs> You know, we mentioned in the open that you moved to Vegas and you did play-by-play there. Currently, Vegas is the home to the Mets' AAA affiliate. However, they're working to get out of their final year wow. and move to yeah. Syracuse as they just purchased the Chiefs. So for you hockey fans and, you know, Slapshot, we now know who owns who owns the Chiefs. But, um, you know, hockey has made that plunge as the first major sport to have a team in the market to be followed by the Raiders in 2020. Being there, is Vegas a viable area for professional sports, do you think, and will they be able to sustain two major sporting teams in that area? 
Yeah, I think they will. And it, the first team to get in there is going to be very successful, and that's, of course, the Golden Knights. And, and I did uh, the International Hockey League there for a while, and that was pretty successful. But the arena made it impossible for the owners to do business uh, due to the rent they began to charge them and then demand, and they just, you know, they wanted several million a year or whatever the number was. And they just in a minor league um, operation. You just can't afford to operate, so that's why the team left. And it had nothing to do with the following. The following was there. And that was uh, a different situation because in Vegas there have been many teams that have come and gone in many different leagues and many different incarnations. Now I saw today where uh, apparently somebody bought the San Antonio WNBA franchise and is moving it to Vegas. That's one I'd worry about. Um <laughs> But I would, say, I would say that the National Hockey League will do exceptionally well there. They're off to a great start, and I think they're going to, they're going to stay, you know, stay on a good start. You know, the question about, um, yeah. sorry, the question about Vegas always, who's going, where's the following coming from? Is it going to come from the locals there? Or is it going to come from people who come in on vacations and want to take time out from gambling and see a game? Where do you think the major following is going to come to make teams in Vegas succeed? The major part of it is going to be from the locals. That that town has grown by leaps and bounds, population-wise, over the last 20 years. It's it's amazing, and people have been looking to do something other than you know what do we do tonight? Well, let's go to the casino, uh, or let's go to the you know some of the local casinos made it so that you they had beautiful movie theaters and bowling alleys and all these other attractions that would bring you into the casino. Now. Uh, where T-Mobile Arena is, you know, it's just a, I mean, they're, they're going to do very, very well. It's getting to a point now where they're actually charging for parking in Las Vegas, where they never did before. So people are going to get used to that. I, I still think they're going to do very well. And uh, as far as the NFL goes, you, you could play the NFL anywhere. You, you <laughs> can put it in the middle of the mountains and people are going to show up. So I think that having it in Las Vegas uh, Las Vegas has always been a big-time event destination. Boxing and UFC have, have proven that time and time again. And the NFL games are a big-time event. So I think the, you know, the Raiders are going to do really, really well, but they do well anywhere. I honestly believe that. You can stick them in the middle of the Mojave Desert and people will show up. Uh, that's essentially what they're doing <laughs> by putting them in Vegas. Um, and the other thing about you mentioned the Mets AAA franchise, uh, the Las Vegas 51s, um, whoever the next team is that they're affiliated with, and there will be a next team, is going to have the benefit two years from now of a brand-new, beautiful stadium that is uh, right next door to the uh, NHL practice facility in Summerlin, which is north of downtown. So they've got that. They're going to be putting a shovel in the ground for that new baseball facility any time now. And I'm really looking forward to seeing that happen. I don't know if they're ready for Major League Baseball yet, although I, I have heard some rumblings that when it's time for expansion again, Vegas could be on the radar. And, you know, the, the move makes sense for the Mets because now all their minor league teams will be situated in the state of New York. Right. It's not going to take, you know, overnight and, and guys getting in exhausted and not ready to play uh, from these cross-country yeah. moves. Now, we also mentioned in the Open your, your time with Pittsburgh, and there your team with Greg Brown, who behind Andrew McCutcheon may be one of the most recognizable figures in the organization right now. What was it like working with Greg, and what is the, the main thing that you learned from him with your time in Pittsburgh? Uh, Greg's great. He's a good friend, and we still communicate quite a bit. You know, frankly, it was very, very difficult for me to leave Pittsburgh. I, I didn't want to leave Pittsburgh. 
but I was in a unique situation where I had a choice. I could have stayed with the Pirates or, or taken the job with the Red Sox, and Boston is home for me. And it wasn't like an easy snap decision, believe me. It, it took a long time. And I talked to Greg about it. Um, I talked to my other partners about it. And, you know, they, they, were, they didn't want to lose me, which was a nice feeling to have. But they understood because it was going home. And, you know, the things I learned about uh, from Greg Brown are that uh, the way things are in Pittsburgh, he's got a real good handle on them. Uh, he can be uh, very boisterous with his calls and crazy with some of his calls. But the people in Pittsburgh love that because it's kind of an offshoot from what they've become used to with the Penguins announcer, Mike Lang, who's got all these crazy <laughs> sayings and everything. And Mike and, and Greg are actually very close friends. And, and so Greg's got a, a bunch of crazy sayings, and, you know, you can't introduce them all overnight, but I don't know. I, I think that, uh, you know, being around Greg as much as I was, and that was a lot, uh, was uh, a heck of a lot of fun. And, and uh, you know, I did learn a lot from Greg and, and enjoyed his uh, enjoyed being around him and, and continued to enjoy his friendship. But, you know, I did miss Pittsburgh. I, I did, you know, I do miss National League Baseball, to be honest with you. Um, but... Uh, if I could be in two places at one time, I'd be here in Boston and I'd be in Pittsburgh with the Pirates. You, you so, mentioned the Red Sox job and, and you know coming home and being a Red Sox fan, but the way you found out about that job is rather interesting. Could you share that with our audience? Yeah, it was a little weird because we'd just been bounced from the uh, wild card game by the Cubs in, what, 2015, and a couple of days after that game, I was just sitting home. And, you know, my son wants to get into minor league baseball, which he, he did last year. He was with the Birmingham Barons, the Double A, and, and unfortunately, most minor league jobs now are seasonal. So, um, but anyway, I, I was trying to help him find a, a minor league opening. So I was kind of scanning around on the internet and uh, saw a listing for the Boston Red Sox, and just kind of shook my head and I said, "Nah, I can't do that. This, I got a great job here," and they probably a million people lined up for that. And a little while later, a friend of mine uh, who works for the parent company uh, that owned the radio rights called me and he said, you know, they have an opening. And, and I said, yeah, I saw that. And, we, and he said, uh, you'd be the perfect guy. He said, I'm going to call somebody. Don't move. So he called somebody in Boston. And it was already after the deadline for entries and everything else. And I'm thinking, ah, do I really want to do that? And he calls me back and he said, he said, they want to talk to you. And he said, this is the guy. He said, call him right now. And this was like on a Saturday late afternoon. And uh, about a week later, I was up interviewing. And, um, you know, we had many discussions over the phone. And, and I, I actually couldn't decide what I wanted to do. And one of the newspapers, before I had even decided, uh, put a story out that I was going to be the guy. And I hadn't even done anything. I mean, I, I wanted to spit nails. I was so upset, and still am, um, at what they did, because that really ruined it for me and kind of put pressure on me more to, to, to come home now that people found out what I was doing. and But I felt it was best to come home. Um, you know, my parents are getting older. It's good to be around my family. And uh, I think it was uh, it was the right decision at the time. But although I do miss doing the television, I had to give up the TV side. Um, the Red Sox are okay with me doing TV, but the, the New England Sports Network has their own ideas, apparently. So, <laughs> so I just do radio, and uh, it's, it's actually kind of nice. And working with Joe Castiglione is a great honor. Uh, the time he spent in the game and, 
and the respect he has from everybody around the game. And, and uh, it's been a lot of fun so far for two years. If you're just tuning in, we're talking to radio voice of the Boston Red Sox, Tim Neverett. You, know, you talk about working Joe Castiglione, a legend in Boston right now. Growing up, who was the announcer for the Red Sox who you most listened to and liked to em- tried to emulate? Well, um, I don't know about try to emulate, but listen to a lot uh, was, was Joe and his partner. And I never told Joe that because I don't want him to feel older than he is. Um, because, uh, you know, when I was in high school, Joe got the job. Okay. <laughs> okay. So I listened to and I, when I went after to college, I could. Yeah, 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 it was after Ned Martin. Ken yeah. Coleman was his partner for a long time. And so I listened to a lot of Ken Coleman and, and Joe. Uh, Ned had moved over to television by then. And uh, those are the guys I probably listened to. Them. Certainly Ken Coleman quite a bit. You know, it's interesting because now with uh, I have Sirius XM radio, and that also now streams over your, your laptop. or, or right. You can over, get any game you want and listen or, to anybody. Or the Amazon Dot or Echo. Yeah. Or you, if you have the Major League Baseball app, you can listen to the home or away feeds of the games. So I love listening to, to – I love radio more so than I, I actually like baseball. I mean, here we're, we're blessed in New York with a very good television crew as well. But I, I just assume listen to Howie and you know, the guys on the radio. But, you know, for me, I've listened to you guys, and it's very interesting because there's so many different styles. And you take a look. look listening to Joe is like almost sitting down with your uncle or your great-grandfather, and he's always got a great story to tell, and he knows so much of the history of the Red Sox. And you bring, the like, not so much analytics, but you really describe – um, you're able to break down situational baseball. You describe the field and what's happening, and you talk about it in such a way that listeners can actually see the situation in their heads and learn why certain uh, teams play shifts the way they do. You know, back in the day, announcers didn't do that. So almost to piggyback on AJ's question, where did you learn that craft? Because you are, you're, you're not one of those cookie-cutter announcers that depend and wait for that moment to use that catchphrase. And that's refreshing today. Oh, thanks. I, you know, I, there are things that I say over and over again at times. I don't sit there and, you know, say, uh, I don't know, boom goes the dynamite or whatever. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I won't have something like that. But, I mean, over the course of 162 regular season games, playoff games, and multiple spring training games, I mean, I'm going to repeat myself. Uh, but to answer your question, that I, do, I, I don't know. I, I didn't really learn to, to do it that way. I've just figured that with radio being theater of the mind, you know, you've got to try to bring it, uh, you know, uh, bring people a picture. And with the changing face of baseball today, the way that it's changing with uh, multiple shifts, with uh, different numbers, and, 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 you know, I don't get into, you know, war and batting average on balls in play and uh, this and that. I mean, not that there's anything wrong with those things. I just think that there's no reason to talk above you know, most of your listeners, um, because especially the, the ones who have been listening to radio for years and years, they don't want to hear, you know, they don't want to hear me talking about BABIP and War Plus and OPS Plus and all these other things, um, you know, the WRC and UZR. <laughs> we, you know, defensive runs saved, we can sneak in there because that makes a lot of sense. Um, especially with you know, the Red Sox outfield. It, <laughs> yeah, exactly, with Mookie Betts when he right. did that's where it becomes relevant. So you want to have numbers that are relevant. I mean, you know, you talk about, you know, batting average of runners and scoring position in two outs. I mean, I think people want to know that. They want to know why Hanley Ramirez was so poor there this year, why he hit 152 
with uh, you know you're supposed to be your cleanup hitter and your designated hitter and, and coming off a 30 home run, 100 RBI season. So those are the things you point out. And you know I don't have any direct orders from anybody to say, hey, don't give negative stats. I mean there are teams that do that. I'm I don't. I'm not going to tell you who I think they are. Uh, we know are who they are. That, <laughs> <laughs> but there are teams that will give directives to their announcers. We don't have that. We're allowed to be credible in terms of what we say. And obviously when you're with a team the whole year, yeah, you want them to win. And, uh, you, you, it's more exciting when they score, when they win, when they hit home runs. But as far as what I do, I, I think that describing the play, trying to put it in people's minds is where people are positioned on the field and why – and why teams do it more often than others. You know, these are conversations that you have during the course of the year with other teams' personnel, and you try to relay that on the air. You, you know, you, most of preparation, I think a good portion of the preparation for baseball today is just conversations you have with, with people that you know with other ball clubs, whether it be a GM, an assistant GM, a coach, um, you know, manager, player, other broadcasters, um, you get tons of information that way just having casual conversation, whether it be on the field, by the cage, in the dugout, in the booth, at dinner. Yeah. Um, and those things are all valuable. Those things are all, are all able to be relayed on the air. And I think using any source that I've got uh, to, um, to bring the listener closer to the ball game and closer to the who's, what's, and, and especially the why's, I think it's important. Interesting. That's one of the things that Steve Gelbs does so well yeah. here in New York, you know, going into the visitors' dugout and, and talking to players and, and management as well. Uh, you know, let's get to the Red Sox season and eventually what went wrong and led to the firing of John Farrell. After consecutive 93-win seasons, back-to-back championships in one of baseball's toughest divisions, you know, I, I think every Met fan would have signed up for that right now. It's interesting to note that the Red Sox' next manager will be the fourth in eight seasons – like Terry Francona and Bobby Valentine before him, Farrell was ultimately fired because, again, with deteriorating relationships with the players. What is it about the makeup of that clubhouse? And it's changed from, you know, you go back to Francona and Bobby V and this group. It's a totally different group from, you know, going back to Francona. Why is it so difficult? Why is that clubhouse so well, difficult well, to take care of? Is, did he lose the clubhouse? I don't think he lost the clubhouse, to be honest with you. Know, I'm in there pretty much every day. Uh, and I'm in John's office uh, about every other day. I have a sit-down with him in the office. I do part, I do game shows. Joe uh, Castiglione and I split those up. So he and I go in every other day and have a sit-down behind closed doors, just just the manager and myself. And, um, and I do spend time in the clubhouse. I do talk to a lot of players. I never saw that side of it. I never saw him lose the clubhouse. I never saw players disrespecting him by face, gesture, the little things that you learn to look for over time. I never saw it. Um, the one thing I did see was um, I, I just I, I don't I don't think that perhaps the way the David Price uh, situation was handled this year was uh, to John's benefit. Um, I think that may or may not have had something to do with his firing. It may, it may have. Uh, but if you have a guy who wins back-to-back division titles and just won your World Series a couple of years ago, I think you take it, right? So in terms of wins and losses, and, and you know, last year you had three guys 
with 30 home runs and 100 RBIs. Mookie Betts, who should have been the MVP. David Ortiz, who had a, a season for the ages in his final season. And Hanley Ramirez, who had a career year. This year, you don't have that. You don't have that at all. And you lose David Price for most of your season. And there were times when he was just ineffective. And really, a, a, I mean, a challenge for any manager to handle um, for a lot of reasons. I, I'm trying to think of, wasn't it Girardi who was uh, manager of the year down in Florida and got fired? Right, the Marlins, right. It was a change in ownership, wasn't right. it? Yeah, Lurie, yeah, Lurie, yeah. Lurie. I mean, his manager of the year, they, the <laughs> new ownership didn't even give him a shot. But, you know, things have worked out a little joke. Just that was the closest thing I can think of in terms of wins and losses. Uh, the other thing is, this was not Dave Dombrowski's hire. Yeah, right. um, and, and Dave just basically the other day said it was time for a change, and I'm not getting into the reasons why. Well, let, uh, he let just, me, you know, had a press conference and he didn't tell the press anything. So. Well, you know, you take know. a look at Dave Dombrowski. You know, Sandy is somewhat visible. He's not on the yeah. field every day. He's, he's very rarely in the clubhouse. But yet, Dave Dombrowski, who does not have a general, there is no general manager right now for the Red Sox. He is one of those few executives that basically goes to every single game on the road as well, is constantly on the field during BP and in the clubhouse. Is, could that be an issue with, at times, especially nowadays, where managers are more middle managers? If you have your boss there 24-7, does that erode the confidence within the clubhouse? You know, I don't know. There were many, many times when I would go down to visit with John and I would have to wait because Dave was in his office and the door was open and Dave would be on the couch and they'd be smiling and chatting and Looked very, very pleasant. I saw that many, many times over the last two years. I never saw them get at each other. I never saw there was a sense of tension whatsoever. Uh, it was it was odd. But, yeah, it, and it is odd for a GM, a president. He does have the role of GM now, by the way, and, and, and he's team president. But it is unusual in today's day and age to have that person traveling to every road game. And being in the dugout before the game on the field in the clubhouse, I mean, he's he's everywhere because he wants to be overseeing his his team. He wants to be there. He he feels that he needs he needs to be there. I, I think that comes from the guy he learned from, Roland Heeman, who was his mentor uh, with the Chicago White Sox years and years ago. Uh, I think you know Dave is really a throwback, old school guy in, in terms of that. And, and he and I have had those conversations in the past about. You know why he does this, and uh, you know he just he keeps eyeballs on everybody, and you know it's his team essentially to to monitor. So, uh, but he's always pleasant. I mean, he'll get up on the airplane, he'll come back, and he'll he'll go see the players occasionally. He doesn't do it all the time, but he'll get up and shake hands and ask how you're doing and hit you on the shoulder. Hi, how's everything good? Yeah, great, good to talk to you. And sometimes we'll just have a full-on conversation. He's a really interesting guy. And a pretty easy guy to get along with, at least from our standpoint. And I like him, you know, I like him a lot. And I think that, you know, he takes his job extremely seriously. But he's usually all smiles and he's very open and and available. So, you know, he's going to make his own hire. And that's going to put Dave's, you know, big stamp on the ball club right now. You know, it's interesting. And you can't put too much emphasis on it because if you look at the numbers, over the last two years, the, the Red Sox are one in six postseason, and they've been outscored thirty nine to twenty six in those seven games. But and we talk about it here in New York, the the going back to the Yankee days, how much of an influence Don Zimmer was. How important was Torrey Lovello 
you know, to the Red Sox as the bench coach for him. And was there a discernible difference because he wasn't there? Even though the record's the same, was he a big factor? Well, I look at it this way, and, and I like Tory a lot. I think Tory's done a great job in Arizona, but it's the backup quarterback syndrome, you know? The backup <laughs> quarterback is the most popular guy on the football team because he's not the guy on the front line. And, unless he's the Jets' it. backup quarterback. Trust me. <laughs> yeah, unless, you're the, unless you're the Jets' backup. Right. That's right. But, um, but I think that was the case. Now, Tory took over. John, uh, in 2015, had cancer uh, treatments and had to miss time. And, and Tory took over, and, you know, I, I think he related pretty well to the younger players and, um, you know, won a bunch of games, which was great. Uh, but he wouldn't even sit in John's office while John was gone, out of respect to the manager. Uh, Gary DeSarcina, uh had to manage one game this year when John went to see his son Luke make his major league debut pitching for the Kansas City Royals. Um but Torrey had a, a real solid run of games, and, and I think if Torrey was still the bench coach here, he would already have been named the manager of the Red Sox. If he had stayed one more season in Boston, but, uh, you know, he was very well-respected, very well-liked. Uh, I know he was a good communicator uh, with the players, and I, I don't know if it would have made a huge difference based on the results. I mean, look at the fact that they had – you know, those guys I mentioned before, they had three thirty one hundred guys and this year didn't even have close to that and still had the same number of wins and that was without Tory on the bench. And no bullpen depth either, if you take a look yeah. at the fact you know, some of the, you know, that that Fister was brought in for depth and I think he ended up yeah. being fifth in the amount of innings yeah. pitch, and I think they used 10 different guys in middle relief during the season. So, so you're right. A lot of different factors went into to still st- maintaining that same number but not having the same consistency throughout. So I want to ask yeah. one, one last thing. So we're getting sure. short on time with you. Thank you for your time. Let's look ahead. Now, we have our team here, the Yankees, playing Houston, the team that just beat the Red Sox. What did you see out of Houston, and do you think they are a juggernaut, or can the Yankees beat them? Well, you got to remember, we finished the season with a four-game series against Houston before starting the division series. So we saw them play in eight straight games. And the way that they played that last series, that really didn't mean a heck of a lot to them. Uh, they could have caught Cleveland for home field, but they weren't going to do it, but they still played their rear ends off. And then in a division series, they were exceptional. Uh, to me, that's the best team I've seen all year by a good stretch top to bottom in that batting order they can kill you and with the and people in new york aren't going to like this but jose altuve should be gotta be the mvp yeah i showed you that even even if you are the biggest you know yankee fan which i am i I can give the MVP guy strikes out 200 times a year it's still set a rookie record but that's besides the point uh and, and and lastly you know like here with the New York Mets, the, the fan base is clamoring to see when these interviews are going to take place, who the next manager is going to be. The early buzz out of Boston, you know, you guys are, are looking at some of the same guys the Mets are looking at. Gut feeling, who do you think will be the, the Boston Red Sox manager come opening day? Uh, I don't know. If I had to guess, it could be uh, one of a number of guys, but if I had a wish list, I'd probably I'd probably lean toward Alex Cora. <laughs> I'd love to have it. I know them. I know him a little bit, and I think that he would relate to the younger players very well. I think he'd be a good communicator. He's bilingual. He's great with the media. 
He's been part of the media as a broadcaster, so he, he would understand what I would need ever on a daily basis. So maybe I'm biased there. But um, I think he's a guy that, that deserves a real shot. Uh, you know, Ron Gardenhire could be a candidate. Uh, I'm, I'm hearing Brad Osmus is less of a candidate uh, these days. I, I just think it would be a bad look for Dave Dombrowski if he hired Osmus for a second time, especially in the pressure cooker that's Boston. I mean, you know, Osmus had blowups with the media in Detroit, and Detroit is like easy street compared to, to Boston handling the media. So I don't, I don't know if Osmus would, would be a good fit here in Boston, but I think, I think I'd like to see them try Alex Cora just to get a real breath of fresh air. Um, he's a really good guy. I just uh, chatted with him real briefly on the field in, in Houston, uh, I think before game one or two for the DS. Um, but, uh, you know, it was my understanding, according to some published reports, that he was already interviewed today. Um, so I, I, I'd like to see that. That'd be my number one guy on the wish list right now, at least in terms of the guys they're talking with. Yeah, he's pretty much on the Mets number, Met fans' yeah. number one list as well. Uh, and given the choice, I'm sure he'd rather go to Boston right. where they've got a nucleus of a good young team going forward. One guy um, that... You've seen, and you know when. Um, actually, no, he was there before you. But a guy who also has been mentioned for the job is a guy I also would like to see with the Mets. What have you heard about Gabe Kapler? If he is a viable candidate for any of these teams that have openings, you know, I know uh, a lot of people like him uh, who know him, but I have not heard his name as a serious candidate. Doesn't mean he won't be interviewed. Doesn't mean he, he wouldn't blow them away in an interview. You know, I I don't know. I I know that. The only time I've even heard his name, one uh, one blogger from Boston wrote an article about it saying that he should be the guy. <laughs> but uh, I didn't read the article. I just saw the headline. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, you know, you could throw out Spider-Man right now. Who, who would know, right? <laughs> right. Uh, All right. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not disrespecting Gabe because he's a good baseball man. Uh, you know, Jason Veritek is another name that comes up. He's in uniform for the Red Sox as a special assistant, um, you know, who might have managerial aspirations at some point. But he hasn't been through a full season since he stopped playing. Right. Anywhere. Should be so, interesting I mean, off-season up there in Boston. We appreciate your yeah, time it'll be, tonight. It'll be fun. It's, it's never dull, I'll tell you that. <laughs> That's yeah. for sure. Thanks so much for your time tonight, Tim. All right, no problem, Mark. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it very much. Our pleasure, Tim Neverett, voice of the Boston Red Sox.